are here and that you made it and that you are healthy, uh, as it seems like sickness and everything just keeps on running through uh, various different individuals. And uh, thank God that uh, some of us are on the men's and still got this lag, nagging cough myself, but I am glad that you are here and glad to be with you and worshiping with you today. If I've not had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Pastor Adrian Pina. I have the opportunity to serve as the interim pastor here at Firewheel. We are very glad that you are here today. We know that there are many places you could choose to worship, but we are grateful that you are here. And those of you who are joining us online, we love you and we are glad that you are here as well. So today we are going to continue on in our sermon series we started last week. This is our Christmas series and we're doing something called the Characters of Christmas. So what we're doing is we are looking at various different characters that played a role in the Christmas story, and we started off by looking at the villain of the story. We looked at the real Grinch who tried to steal Christmas, and his name was King Herod. And we, we looked at his nefarious plot and how he was trying to ascertain from the wise men the, uh, when Jesus was born, and then this murderous plot that he put into, uh, into function in order to try to prevent Christ from ascending to this Jewish Messiah to come to the throne. And what we really saw in his story is this one truth. We saw that no one can stop God's plan. No one can stop God's plan. I don't know about you, but that's a good thing. So that no human, no, uh, no angelic being, not even Satan himself, can stop God's plan. When Jesus came in flesh, what we call the incarnation was that God's perfect time was for his perfect purposes and that his plan was not going to be thwarted. And so that, because of his incarnation, we have the hope that we have that we celebrate this season. So today we're going to look at another character. I call him kind of the forgotten character of the Christmas story, and we'll get to him in just a moment. But let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever audited a class before? Anybody ever audited a class before, right? Some type of class? So at the school I attend, at Dallas Theological Seminary, you have the opportunity potentially to audit courses. So after you graduate, you can audit courses for a very small fee, or even if you haven't graduated, you, there's some different ways in which you can audit courses. Now, the benefit of auditing a course is that in some ways it allows you to sit in the class but not have to do any work. You basically get all the information without any application in that way. You don't actually have to do anything. You don't have to read the books. You don't have to take the tests. You don't have to submit the papers. You don't have to worry about doing discussion things. You don't have to do any of that stuff. You get to sit in the class, absorb all this information, this great information for whatever topic you wanted to be able to uh, uh, get into as long as you paid the small fee. So in that sense, because in, the reason why is because you're not taking the class for credit. So there's no accountability. There's no expectation that you're going to do something because you're not getting rewarded in that sense for it. So I can say it this way. In other words, you listen to the course, but you don't do anything with what you hear. Right? So there's no accountability. So listening happens without application. Let me turn that around and make that into a spiritual kind of uh, idea for us. There are many people, unfortunately, today who audit the Bible. That's what they do. They audit it. They like, they absorb all the information about it, but don't do anything with it. So they listen to, they may even come to church on a Sunday morning, hear a sermon. They may even participate in a Bible study or a small group. They listen to all this information, and they're just absorbing all this information and all this knowledge. But faith without works is dead. 
right? So there has to be an applicational component to what we learn when we are listening to the scripture. So there is a lot of listening going on, but sometimes no doing, and then we wonder why our lives are not changed. Well, our lives cannot be changed if we don't allow the word of God to actually change us by doing what it says. Here's my one true statement for you this morning. Faith and obedience cannot be separated. Faith and obedience cannot be separated. Faith is always an active thing. Faith involves uh, us responding to and doing something. It's very easy for us to say we believe something, but that's only part of the equation. Okay? Knowing is half the battle. Some of y'all 80s kids and 70s kids got that reference real quick. So knowing is half the battle, but that only brings you part way. Knowing without doing is not the full picture and panorama of faith. Faith is knowing and doing. It's trusting and then acting upon that trust, okay? So today we're going to look at a character in the Christmas story. I believe that rightly incorporated both faith and obedience in a very unique way. As a matter of fact, he's the often overlooked character of the story, the earthly father of Jesus, Joseph. Joseph was a righteous man who not only believed by faith, but he also walked out that belief and walked in obedience to what God had said. So if you have your Bible today and you want to open up with us, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, we're going to be walking through and looking at verses 18 to 25, very familiar verses. But we're going to look at three basic movements in the life of Joseph that are articulated to us in just these seven short verses, okay? So we're going to look at and we're going to hone in on the earthly father of Jesus, Joseph. So the first thing that we learn about Joseph, starting in verse 18, is that Joseph was righteous. It's the righteous Joseph. He was described as a righteous man. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, we're going to come back to that word, what that means. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice how many times this phrase or this idea is brought up just in these few verses. That she is pregnated by the Holy Spirit. Because that's important, we're going to get to that as well. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, and her husband Joseph being a just man, some of your translations may say righteous man or something along those lines, that being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So let's look at some few important things that are brought to, brought to light in these two verses. Number one is that it talks about Joseph was betrothed to Mary. I don't know about you, but that's not common vernacular. When's the last time you used the word betrothed in a sentence? Okay, so it's not something that we utilize and say every day. What exactly does it mean that Joseph was betrothed to Mary? It means much more than what we think of like a modern-day engagement, okay? So betrothal amongst Jews must not be confused with engagement. It was far more serious and binding. The bridegroom and the bride, so the husband and the to-be wife, pledged themselves to each other in the presence of witnesses. In a restricted sense, this was essentially marriage. So at this point, when they were betrothed, they were essentially married, okay? So also here, it is clear from the fact that we read even in the scripture that from that moment that they were betrothed, Joseph is called Mary's husband in verse 19, and Mary's also called Joseph's wife in verse 20. According to Old Testament regulation, unfaithfulness 
in a betrothed woman was punishable by death. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 20, uh, chapter 22, verses 23 and 24. If you want a reference, Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 and 24. Yet though the two were now legally married, it was considered proper that an interval of time elapsed before the husband and wife began to live together in the same home. All right, so there was this kind of like formal kind of uh, little bit where it was a publicly before witnesses, at least a couple witnesses, that this kind of uh, union came together. The bringing together of these two people and these two families. But then there was a period of time when the husband would go away and make preparations for the home before he was to receive the wife into the home and they would consummate the marriage. Now, interestingly enough, that usually women around this time were married at about 13 or 14 years old. Now, some of you who have a 13 or 14-year-old, imagine that right now. That somebody get married at 13 or 14 years old. I'm just going to leave it there, all right? So, usually women married about 13 or 14 years of age, and their husbands were often older. But many people believe, myself included, that by saying older, they still were teenagers. Many believe that... Mary was probably about 13 or 14 years old, and Joseph was likely somewhere between the ages of 18 to 20. So we're still talking about teenagers. Babies getting married, if we can say it that way, okay? Normally during the one-year waiting period, as I said, the husband would go uh, prepare the home and do some other things in preparation to receive their, his wife. And during that year, the couple can only break their betrothal through divorce. It was considered a divorce if you broke your betrothal. So this goes a lot more deeper than what we would consider engagement today. Now, can you imagine placing yourself in Joseph's shoes that you betrothed yourself to this woman, you are legally a person who upholds the law, and you are a follower of the Jewish law, and you're describing as a righteous man, meaning righteous unto the law, that he was, he was a devout man. All of a sudden, finding out news and saying that your wife is pregnant and you, uh, you've attended health class and you realize that you did not participate in this event. Okay? So you realize that very quickly that there's a problem. If she's pregnant and I wasn't part of that equation, what's going on? This is a lot more significant than saying the dog ate my homework or something of that nature, okay? So there's a whole lot of things going on in the background and likely in his mind. And here's this 18 to probably 20-year-old man who thinks his soon-to-be wife essentially has stepped out on him and gotten pregnant. You can imagine word going around the town talking about Mary for that matter. And like talking about, oh man, did you hear she got pregnant and Joseph's not the dad? This is before Twitter. Now, like, can you imagine, like, all this stuff that's going around the water cooler? This is water cooler talk, all right, during that day. So Joseph is stuck between the rock and the proverbial hard place. I mean, what is he going to do? He's betrothed to this woman, and he loves this woman, and, like, apparently she's been potentially unfaithful. And here's what I want you to understand is sometimes read with intention when you're reading the Scripture. Not only read to see the humanity of the story, but then also read Read critically. Joseph doesn't have all the information at this time. Just because you know the end of the story, put yourself in his shoes, he doesn't know the end of the story. So Joseph is just receiving word that his wife is pregnant, soon-to-be wife is pregnant, but he doesn't know how this actually came about. Mary knows, and I can imagine how that conversation went. Imagine her just saying, oh yeah, Joseph, don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit impregnated me. I don't know how that's going to fly, but, you know, whatever it may be. 
But here's something interesting. Verse 19 describes Joseph as a just man or righteous man because he was obedient to the law of Moses. So seemingly, since Mary violated the law of Moses, Joseph basically had one of three options. Number one is he could take the real kind of what I would say in slang, the dirty option, and he could be really, really mean to her and somebody who's like this jilted lover. And basically he can expose her publicly for being unfaithful, which would have left her open to be stoned. She could have been stoned to death according to the law of Moses. He could have done that. That was option number one. Option number two is that he could grant her a private divorce where he would only need to hand her a written certificate in the presence of two witnesses, Deuteronomy 24.1. So he could have taken her publicly, taken a couple witnesses with him, and basically said, you know what, we're going to do this, here's the certificate, we're going to divorce. The other option was to remain with Mary and to not divorce her. Those are his three options, basically. But I love the fact that Matthew highlights Joseph's character. His motivation behind his actions are found in the words, not wanting to disgrace her. So he extends to her compassion and mercy. And I want you to see that even before the angel comes into the play in this story, Joseph is already exhibiting faith and obedience. He's exhibiting faith according to what he understands the Mosaic law to be, and he's actually walking out the Mosaic law. And he's actually walking out the Mosaic law in the more merciful and compassionate way by wanting to put her aside publicly. Uh, not publicly, but to do it privately because he's a man who's compassionate and extends to her mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve, and Mary could have been publicly humiliated, and death would have been acceptable, but Joseph did not want to go that route. Let me give you a principle here real quick. The principle is simply this. You can be right and be wrong at the same time. You can be right and you can be wrong at the same time. Here's what I mean by that. My mom always used to tell me this. Mom always used to say that I could say something that essentially is factually 100% correctly, but if I say it like a jerk, I could be equally as wrong no matter how factual what I'm saying actually is. So just because I may be right doesn't mean I get to be a jerk about it. All right? So having a bad attitude, even though I, what's re being relayed is correct, is not the spirit of the reality of what it should be anyway. Right? So think about this. Joseph's motivation behind his actions are key. Without having all the information at this point in the situation, he is willing to offer mercy to his seemingly adulterous, soon-to-be wife. 18, 20-year-old, 18 to 20-year-old man, imagine walking in that high level of character, and he's willing to be able to extend her some level of mercy and allow her to save face, if we could say it that way. It's beautiful. He really is a merciful and kind man. There are men who could be righteous, men and women alike, who could be righteous. They could can, they can be in some ways right and they could be morally right, but they are not kind. There are also people who may be kind but not righteous. Joseph was both. He was a righteous and a kind man. Joseph is a man that we should long to emulate. So the first thing I wanted you to see about him is that he was a righteous man. The second thing is, let's talk about what Joseph's role is. He's the earthly father of the incarnate son. What does that all even entail? What does that mean? Let's talk about the role of Joseph, verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, key phrase, do not take fear, uh, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. There we go again, second time that it's mentioned that what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. 
you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Let's talk about a little theology right now. We have already mentioned twice in the verses that we have read this idea that what has been, what's inside of Mary has basically been conceived of the Holy Spirit. We call this doctrine the doctrine of the virgin birth, which is actually incorrectly labeled. It should be more called the doctrine of virgin conception, all right? But that reality, we call it the virgin birth. Why is this significant? Matthew makes this a point. All the gospel writers actually make it a point, but Matthew makes it even more of a point to specifically say that the way and manner in which Jesus came in human flesh was by a virgin through a miraculous supernatural conception. Why is this so important? This is extremely, extremely, extremely important for the Christian faith. Okay? One of the oldest creeds that is in Christendom is what we call the Apostles' Creed. Likely 4th century uh, it was a baptismal creed that people was used as a way to be able to teach people doctrine, but it was often used by a person who was being baptized that they would confess this creed. And it's called the Apostles' Creed because it was kind of a formulation or summary of the things that the apostles actually taught. In that creed, it says these words, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. This has been the testimony of the church going back to its very origin, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. This has been part of Christianity since its very onset. It is so significant that the gospel writers make this a point to point out. And this is a very important theological concept. Let me give you three reasons why the virgin birth is important. It's important for us to camp here for a moment before we get back to Joseph. Three reasons why the virgin birth is important. Number one is that the virgin birth has been a doctrine universally attested to throughout Christian history, as I alluded to, all the way from the beginning. You can go even into writings that go back to the first and second century that attest to the virgin birth. Second, it is clearly articulated in Scripture. If we take Scripture to be the actual Word of God, it's articulated in the Gospels and various other different points. It's articulated in Isaiah 7:14 when it's prophesied way before Jesus even came onto the scene. The reality of the virgin birth is something that is clearly articulated in Scripture. And lastly, it points to the uniqueness of God the Son. Only God the Son was born in this manner. This points to the uniqueness of this child who was to be born. This child isn't just some regular child. This child conceived of the Holy Spirit, conceived of by God to be the God-man then in this point where God and humanity come together in one person, the divine nature and human nature together in the person of Jesus as the God-man. The uniqueness of the child to be called the Christ. This is extremely important stuff. This is why we believe the virgin birth and we attest to it. We can understand why God decided to have an angel communicate to Joseph because it validates the information that he had been given by Mary about her pregnancy. But you notice that the angel addresses Joseph as son of David. If you guys know your Bible, you should know why that's important. 
Why is he attested to as son of David, and why is that so important? Because if you actually go earlier in the chapter, and if you read the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, then you will see that Joseph, being of the line of David, fulfills a promise given way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to David that we often call the Davidic covenant. And that Davidic covenant is that there would be one from the line of David who would be on the throne of Israel forever. And in this case, Jesus falls in the line of David through the person of Joseph. Because Joseph is a descendant of David, son of David. Really, really important stuff. The angel tells him not to be afraid. That's a very, very, uh, uh, huh. I don't know, I'd be afraid too. But uh, it seems like, why is that always the thing that the angels say immediately when they appear? They always say, don't be afraid. I'd be afraid just because you said don't be afraid, and I'd be afraid if an angel appeared before me anyway. There's just something significant about what's going on right there at that moment. But do not be afraid. This doesn't mean that he wasn't fearful, but we could translate it. Listen to this. The way we could translate this in the Greek, and it would be honest to the Greek, is we could say don't back out. The angel's telling him, he's not telling him not to be afraid, but he's basically saying you could take Mary as your wife. Don't back out of this thing. Don't back out of this thing because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So, again, Joseph has to exhibit faith and walk in obedience. He has to listen to the word of the actual angel, believe the word of the angel, and then execute on the word of the angel. So he actually has to walk in faith and obedience yet again. Here's a principle for you. Is that when we walk in integrity, integrity takes both faith and guts. It takes faith and guts to do the right thing. It takes faith and guts to, to be able to walk in character, to walk in a way that is upright, in a world that is so desperately in need and so unrighteous, in a way that we as the people of God can live uprightly. To raise our standard of living, to reflect Christ in everything. God may call you to give up your possessions, your place, your position, and certainly your pride. Related to this, he often leads us down roads that we would not choose on our own. Here is Joseph, thinking that he's betrothed to this woman, now thinks that his soon-to-be wife has stepped out on him. Here's an 18 to 20-year-old man who thought he was getting married, now thinks that that's going to be redirected. And now he's going to go from, not only did he think his wife cheated on him, but now you're going to become the father to the Son of God. That's a big responsibility. Just, that's kind of a life changer. Right? I'm sure he wouldn't have chose that on his own. What, us, God? Little old us? Wait until we talk about Mary next week and we see her willingness to just basically say, do with me as you will, Lord, basically. My question to you and to I is, what are we willing to sacrifice for the Savior? With all that he sacrificed for us, what are we willing to sacrifice for him? Joseph's whole life changed in literally the blink of a minute. When he found out that the pregnancy was accomplished by God himself for his very purposes. So, so now, now Joseph is going to be the earthly father of the God and Son incarnate. That's going to be his role. His role from now on is he has the responsibility to help to lead and to grow. To bring Jesus and to help him, to come alongside of him. Don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, that our God came in human flesh. Don't let the mystery or the reality of that ever, ever, ever wonder leave your mind. He needed to be bathed. He needed to be fed. He cried. 
His diaper needed changed. He needed a dad to be able to teach him things. He needed somebody to walk alongside of him. I'm sure his brothers picked on him too. All these different things. Look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This child has a purpose in his birth, and that was to save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves or the Lord saves. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy given by the prophet Isaiah some 700 years prior. In Isaiah 7.14, almost quoted verbatim here. So when we talk about the role of Joseph, the question that we have to ask ourselves is will he accept the call of God on his life? God has just rang his number. God just rang his number and called his number and basically said, hey you, Joseph, I got a plan for you. Mary, what's in her is from me. And now I want you and her to have the responsibility to help raise my son. Are you going to accept the call? God's calling on the other line. Are you going to accept the call? A lot of times we talk about church folk. You hear them saying, well, I feel called to do something from the Lord. What that usually means, and I agree, is that they feel in their hearts the Lord is wanting them to do something specific, and he has challenged them and given them the ability to do it. And they have to follow through on that. We can reject the Lord's calling over our life. We can reject the reality of the specific gifts that he has given us to be able to utilize for his glory. Joseph had the ability to reject the call of God, but he did not. I can't imagine what it would even be like being his age. I can't, I was a, man, I was barely knowing what I wanted to be in life or I had just gotten saved when I was basically Joseph's age. And I couldn't imagine taking on the responsibility that he took. Let me tell you a story real quick. So when I was seven years old, I was in first grade, and I had to write a paper what I wanted to be when I grow up. Very common kind of thing that you, you write when you're like in grade school, right? Anybody remember the brown paper with the lines and when you had to write cursive and do all that, right? So um, I'm writing on this paper what I want to be when I grow up. Now, now here's a specific important part of context for this story, is that at the time when I was seven years old, we weren't going to church. I didn't know really much about church. My mom wasn't saved at the time. We weren't going to church. So I remember I used to walk with my mom in our city in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and I would often see sometimes these guys had their suits on, right, and they had like briefcases or they had a big Bible, and I like asked my mom, like, who's that? And like, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a larger enough city, but it's a, a city so closely knit together that mostly everybody kind of knows everybody. So she'd be like, oh, that's Reverend so-and-so, he's a pastor of such and such a church or whatever. And so I'd be like, I used to think that they were cool. Don't ask me why I used to think a guy with a three-piece suit and a big Bible was cool. But so I said, you know, I used to tell my mom, oh, I want to be a pastor. That's what I would tell her. I was seven years old, tell her I want to be a pastor. Remember context, we weren't going to church at the time. So here I get this paper to write my first grade assignment, and I actually write on this paper what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be a minister. I want to be a pastor. I wrote it on my piece of paper. And still to this day, I think my mom actually still has the piece of paper. So I wrote that assignment at a school called Alfred J. Gomes School. That's where I went to elementary school. I'll never forget that many, many years later, my spiritual dad is a pastor in our hometown. And at one time, they were renting out the auditorium of that grade school. So I remember I was there on a trip, and I actually got to preach. 
I had to stop for a moment while I was preaching, and I realized right here in this building is when God called me to preach, when God called me to be a minister. Now, if you had put all those pieces together when I was a high school kid doing drugs and just doing all kind of stupid stuff, all that story wouldn't have made sense had not God had a plan. I certainly didn't think when I was 16 years old enjoying my sin when God invaded my life or rudely interrupted my life, by the way, uh, and I felt like he rudely interrupted my life when that all that story was going to come about. The summer going into my senior year of high school. And I was still running from the call of God because I had wanted to become a mechanical engineer and I had applied to a school, got accepted into a very nice school in Massachusetts, very well-respected school. And then about February of that year, it was like, all of a sudden, God woke up the bells, and he's like, hey, remember you wrote that paper? Hey, remember, I got something else for you. I told my mom and I told my youth pastor, hey, I think I want to go to Bible college. And they both looked at me with basically the same resounding answer. We already knew that. We were just waiting when you were going to find that out. The point is, is that when God calls, are we picking up and are we listening? When God calls, are we willing to walk in faith? Are we willing to walk in faith and walk in obedience? Because sometimes it's going to cost you to do that. It's going to cost Joseph to make this choice. His whole entire life has changed literally in a moment. And the level of responsibility has just maxed up hundredfold. And yet, is he going to respond to the call of God, accept it, or is he going to reject it? But he accepts the call and he walks in faith and obedience. So if you have certain plans and dreams... My encouragement to you is to keep them with an open fist because God will at times redirect your life to align his plan with where you think that you're going and redirect you so that way you find your course to his plan for what he has you called to. God's calling. Are you going to answer? Lastly, let's talk about the way Joseph responds. Verse 24. Joseph, when he responds, listen to what he says. So Joseph has this in the context of a dream. Verse 24, when Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Again, Joseph does the right thing. He does the two specific acts of obedience that were mentioned by the angel. What does he do? He takes Mary as his wife. He names the baby Jesus. Remember that faith and obedience cannot be separated. Joseph walks out exactly what he believes is to be what God has actually told him to follow through on. Joseph finally receives the information from the angel, and then he places his faith and trust in God, but the circle is not complete until Joseph actually acts upon that and walks in obedience. Some of you might be here today and say, Pastor, I believe in God. I believe that God has something for me. But well, my question to you is that do your actions bring that that, close that circle and bring it full loop? What are we doing with what we believe that God is actually saying? What are we doing to respond to God? What are we doing to obey God? Scripture tells us in 1 Samuel 15, 22, that to obey is better than sacrifice. God loves when we sacrifice for him, but that is not as important as obedience. I think why it's not as important is because obedience really shows the true nature of your heart. It really shows the true nature of whether God's got your heart or not, if you're going to obey him. Are you going to audit 
Are you going to put in the work? Are you going to receive the information and then do something with it? Just like we see as emblematic in the life of Joseph. There's an old hymn that many of you probably know that I really like, and the lines of it fit very perfectly here. And it says, to trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. That's the reality of the nature of it. Christian faith can be summarized in those two words. Trust is faith. Obedience is walking out that faith. You want to summarize the Christian life? I think you can summarize it in those two words. Trust and obey. Let's summarize for you. So our one true statement today was that faith and obedience cannot be separated. We saw three kind of movements in the life of Joseph. Number one is we see that he's described as righteous, a righteous man, a guy who always did the right thing. Even in the situation with Mary, he's walking out in faith of what he believes according to the Mosaic law, even before he has all the information. He's extending to her grace and mercy. We see the role of Joseph, that God's plan for Joseph was to become the earthly father to the son of God. Joseph's life totally changes, and yet he takes, it takes guts. He walks out in faith and integrity to follow through on that call. And lastly, we see the response of Joseph, the simple response. He acts upon the word that was given to him by the angel to take Mary as his wife and to name him Jesus, evidence of his faith and obedience. How can we put this into practice? It's simply this, is to know your role. Know your role. Understand that if you are here today and you are a believer in Christ, then you have a role to play. You have a calling, if we want to use that word. Joseph could have rejected his role in God's plan, but he responded in faith and obedience. God has given every single one of his people unique gifts to use for his glory and the Holy Spirit to empower us to do the work of ministry, to be able to fulfill that call. This doesn't mean necessarily that you may be in full-time ministry, but it means that wherever you are, you are a minister. And my hope is that this holiday season, that God would open up the opportunity for you to be able to share the story of Christmas, the reality of the incarnation of the Son of God, to become that, the one who has came here on purpose, for a purpose, to bring salvation to his people, that you be able to share that story with many this holiday season. With family members who do not yet know, with those that are in your circle of influence, with co-workers, with those that may be complete strangers, that you would have the opportunity to be able to share the reason for this season, this holiday season. I'm going to ask the prayer team to come up and the worship team as we pray. And I just want to say this kind of in closing before I pray, is that today we looked at a righteous man who walked out in faith. He placed his trust in the word of God. And I'm asking you today, if you have not received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this whole entire season is about the fact that God became a man in order to pay the price for our sin as our substitute. He had to become, we were the ones that broke the relationship with God, so he took on our likeness in order to be able to pay the price for our sins. So we can't think about the birth without thinking about the cross. And we celebrated in that in communion today, and we celebrate and we remember that today as well in all things. Do not miss the reality that there is a Savior who came who wants to save you. And one of these beautiful people would love to be able to pray with you about that today. Let me pray. So, Lord, we're thankful for your goodness and for your mercy. We're thankful that we can look at the life of Joseph and see in it a man who is righteous a man who walked out both in, walked in faith and then was obedient to 
that which he was presented with and that which he knew and understood. I can't imagine the level of responsibility in which he had, and yet he walked in integrity. And Lord, I pray today that we would respond in much the same way to you, whether for some that is the first step of stepping out in faith and placing their trust in you as Savior, or whether that is for us who have been believers, Lord, that we would trust and obey. Whatever it may, you may call us to, whatever the cost may be, because, Lord, you are worthy of it all. And so, Lord, we do love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to ask you if you would, if you can, if you want to, to be able to stand. We're going to go ahead and worship. Every service, we ha have an opportunity for you to be able to receive prayer for whatever it may be. Whether you want to pray to receive Jesus today, whether there's ailments in your body, whether there's something going on with your family. One of the ways, Firewall, we always say that you are loved. One of the greatest ways we can show love toward one another is to pray with one another and carry each other's burdens. So anytime during this song, if you want to come forward for prayer, one of these prayer partners would love to be able to pray with you. Let's go ahead and worship.
he does love us. If you're a first-time guest here, we are really glad that you have taken some time out of your Sunday to be able to worship here. I'd love to have the opportunity to be able to meet you after service, but we do want to draw your attention to, we'd love to see how, as Firewheel, we can come alongside of you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, to walk alongside of you and do life together. So if you would take the opportunity, if you're willing to, to be able to scan the QR code that's on the screen right now to bring you to a short form to be able to fill out, or you can just fill out a physical card at our Welcome Center as you exit the auditorium today. But please make sure to stop by our Welcome Center because one of our guest service attendants would love to be able to say hi to you, give you some information uh, about Firewheel, and also give you a gift for worshiping with us this morning. So, and I'd love to have the opportunity to be able to meet you as well. Also, we're going to take an opportunity now to be able to worship the Lord through giving. So ushers, if you want to go ahead and come forward, we're going to go ahead and do that. And I'm going to take an opportunity to pray over the offering. Uh, this is one of the ways we worship. And I thank you all that I know many of you consider at the end of year, year-end giving. And I know that many of you have started doing that and we really appreciate it. Uh, Money is like seed. And when we sow it, we're asking God that he would cause it to multiply so that way we could utilize it for his kingdom and for his glory and for his purposes. And to be able to steward that well here at Firewheel. Unfortunately, the reality is, is that the city of Rowlett doesn't let us worship here for free. It costs money to put on lights that have a facility to do all those kind of things, but then also to be able to do ministry. And I know that many of you give sacrificially, and we are really grateful for your gracious giving as we give unto the Lord as a cheerful giver. So let me pray over the offering. Lord, we're grateful for the opportunity to worship through giving. Thank you, Lord, that you are so good to us. And Lord, you are the God who owns everything. And so, Lord, I know that you have seen many people through uh, very financial difficulties, and even the church, and just all these different ways, Lord, we trust you, and we know that you are the God who provides. So, Lord, I pray that you would take these gifts given to you as an act of worship, Lord, and cause them to multiply, Lord, that we may continue your work to this place which you have called us to. So, Lord, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm. 
All right. Uh, so first and foremost, yesterday we had our golf tournament. Uh, thank you. Thank you to everyone who came out. Uh, thank you to the sponsors who are in the crowd. It was a great time. Uh, my team didn't win, but if you think about it, how do you even really define winning? Um, it, it's too nebulous a topic. Yes, highest score. Stephen, that was you. So, uh, Moving forward, uh, December 17th, the ladies are having their Love Rocks holiday brunch at 10 a.m. Yes, sign up online for that. On Christmas Eve, we will be having service at 1 p.m. 1 p.m. on Christmas Eve, and then Christmas Day, we will be having service at 9.30. So that's 1 p.m. on Christmas Eve, then 9.30 on Christmas Day. Then for New Year's, which New Year's Day is a Sunday, we will be having one service. So no small group meetings, no youth group, nothing like that. One service at 11 a.m., and there will be childcare for two and under. So once again, that's New Year's Day, 11 a.m., childcare, two and under. And then flash forward to January, which is right around the corner, uh, starting on January 11th on s at 7 p.m., in place of our normal Wednesday night men and women's Bible studies, we'll be having Doug Doherty. He's a counselor in Dallas. Some of you may know him. He's going to be doing a three-part couples talk. Um, apparently, marriage can be difficult. That's what I'm told. And so couples talk will uh, allow you to use some tools that you can use in your relationship. That will be a three-part series, and it starts on January 11th at 7 p.m. That's all. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, if you guys want to stand, we'll go ahead and say the benediction, get you released. And Keith and, Win uh, Keith and, and Keegan wins the award for best shirt, by the way. Absolutely. So he, he, he's able to pull that off. So let's go ahead and pray and we'll get you released. So may the Lord go before you to light the path and give you direction. May he go behind you to guide your steps. May he go beside you to keep you from stumbling. May he go above you to protect you, and may he go within you to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. And may our Father in heaven always grant you the character that is greater than your gifts and humility that is greater than your influence. God bless you guys. We love you all so much. You are dismissed. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.